Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. And I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action. The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gas, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Tim Plester. Actor, filmmaker, playwright an all-round stellar fella, off-screen anyway. Tim is best known for selling drugs to Ricky Gervais in Netflix Afterlife and slitting Cat Stark's throat in Game of Thrones. Alongside his film and TV work, Tim has a well-documented passion for weird and enduring folk customs of our sceptred isle, won the National Student Playwright of the Year Award and has featured in over 70 adverts. Yes, that's right, he was once one of the 118 118 runners. Tim says, The picture you've used is actually of me in character from Netflix's Afterlife, but hopefully that won't mean people are expecting me to come on the podcast with the sole intention of selling you some drugs. Not the sole intention, Tim, but I I assume we're peddling something. Welcome to the show, Tim. Pleasure to be here, Giles. Thanks for having me on. I'd have to say, without kind of revealing too much the inner workings of these things, I was a bit disappointed we didn't get to hear the, um, the theme tune there. I mean, obviously the listeners will have heard it before <laughs> you did the intro, but I'm sat here thinking, when do we get the call to action tune? Which, I'm guessing that isn't you singing. No, but you'll be amazed how many people think it is. See, it's disappointing. It's not you. Just say. I'll tell you what, Tim, after this, I'll send you a, a brief audio of me singing the theme tune. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you. Seven quick fire questions, Tim. Number one, tea or coffee? Uh, I, oh, t- I have to have a tea to start the day, always, and then, then I move to coffee. I'm allowed one coffee a day, but that's the thing. I that's the, that's the part of the day I look forward to most is the coffee, but I have to have the tea first. So, but I mean both. It's that, you know, both of them. Uh, number two, Kenny Dalgleish or Jurgen Klopp? Goodness me. I mean, Kenny. It's Kenny. Stark or Lannister? Um, <laughs> um, I'll side with the Lannisters. Uh, Way of the Morris or the Ballad of Shirley Collins? Um, I'm going to go Way of the Morris just because that was uh, first. Real drugs or film set drugs? Um, film set drugs are usually very disappointing. Yeah. Um, so I'll go. Let's go real. Let's go real drugs. Real drugs. It, 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 right, the only reason I've seen partly is because it reminds me of the the late great Mitch Hedberg, whose uh, brilliant advice was do not buy pot on a movie set. But it would, would be right. It's, it's, it's usually herbal uh, herbal cigarettes <laughs> is what you end up with. Right. Two more. Doritos Allen or Nobby's nuts. Oh, I'm going to go Nobby's nuts. Purely for the chance I had to work with Noddy Holder, who was like a childhood hero of mine. Good answer. We'll come on to that later, hopefully. And then lastly, you've played them both. King Herod or the Angel Gabriel? Oh, my God. Where <laughs> did you find that? Um, Herod. The, the villains always, you know, 
villains are always more fun. Yeah. Amazing. I didn't really trip you up then, but Tim, um, thank you so much for joining us. You, you almost tripped me up by that, that last one there, because that is, that's, that's deep knowledge. That's from a, a school nativity when, uh, yeah, I was, I got the chance to play both parts, both Herod and Gabriel. That shows range. It does show range. That's what I was trying to show, even at an early age, Charles. So, uh, so I've already referred to Afterlife, Game yes. of Thrones, uh, only three of the over 70 ads that you featured in, and I don't really know where to start, but fortunately... Two of the, two of the documentaries. And two made. of the documentaries that you've made, of course, yes. So I need to stick to the script as always, which is quite fortunate, and ask what was your first ever job, and then what was your first proper acting job? Before I get to that, I'll quickly say there is a way of connecting at least two of those items in that if you watch my documentary way of the morris there is a brief shot in it of me dressed as noddy holder as a child uh there's a connect you see what that's you know that that's uh there's a little kind of tether point between the, the two there but so but actually talking about me as, as, a, as a child dressed as noddy holder kind of leads me on to answering your actual question which is my i mean my first job was actually as a paper boy. Uh, and that stems from the fact that I needed to uh, pay for my comic book habit as a child because my uh, my grandparents owned the local uh, newspaper business in a, in a village called Adderbury, which is uh, uh, outside Banbury in, in North Oxfordshire. And uh, so they would, they would spend a lot of time um, uh, setting up the kind of the orders for the, for the village with... You know, it would all be very precisely done so that whoever had the, the papers knew, you know, which door they were going to and which paper would go in. And the comics for the children of that village would be in that pile. And I would go go in after they'd done it and just whip out all the comics <laughs> and go and read them. Um, and so in the end, my grandparents came up with a, a way of me not doing that by saying, well, look, we'll, we'll get you your own copies of the comics, but you have to do something in return, which was to go and do some delivering. Um, which is which is what I did, and again, interesting. There's a shot of me. There is in, empirical evidence of, of of this job because, again, in the documentary film Where the Morris, there is one shot of me on Super Eight um, as a paperboy delivering comics um, in the village. So that was my first job, but it also it kind of that the co- comic books are a really important part of my um, my life and my my pathway really I think into into doing what, I, what I've ended up doing I started off reading a lot of British comics when I was a kid and then slowly uh, moved into you know American comics Marvel DC and then from there into more kind of underground independent American comics and it's still something which I which I read a lot of today I, I you know comic books have remained a passion from 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 way back when my proper first proper acting job or my first paid acting job so I went I went to college. I'll get. I'll get there. I went to college, a place called Dartington in in Devon, which sadly isn't there anymore. And it was quite a unique uh, training ground in that it was a four year course, and uh, this was a, a theatre studies course that I did. And in the third year, uh, you were basically kicked out of the college and asked to go and get work experience in in the real world. And then uh, the idea being that you would come back for your final year, fourth year, and kind of put stuff into into practice that you that you would learn on, on placement. And so, 
I went off and I worked with a company called Payne's Plough in London. It was the first time I'd really spent any time in London as well. So that was that was important in terms of my my um, development. And Payne's Plough only did new writing. That was kind of what I was really interested in while I was at, at college. I'd kind of gone there wanting to be an actor, really, which stems from going back to playing Herod and Gabriel and um, wanting to kind of corner two of the best roles in the nativity, both for myself. And I'd written plays when I was at school again and given the best parts to myself. And then when I was at college, I, as you mentioned at the top, I won the National Student Playwright of the Year Award. So I think at that point, although acting was still, I guess, my primary passion, uh, I felt like the kind of the, the warp and woof of the universe was suggesting that I should maybe be a writer instead, that, you know, if you've won this award, that means you're probably quite good at it. Maybe you should concentrate on that. So I, I kind of, uh, I stopped acting for a while. Like I, I graduated, I came to live in London. I set up a theatre company with a couple of fellow graduates and I acted in the first show that we did, but after that, I I decided I wasn't going to act anymore. I was just going to write. I was going to produce. I was going to basically just help run the theatre company in terms of organising tours, uh, trying to raise funds for it, um, and kind of be in in not in the background, but certainly I wasn't going to be you know on on the stage anymore. So I'd stopped I'd stopped acting for a while. Um, I ran that theatre company for, with my friend uh, for three, I think three or four years on the London fringe. I mean, completely on the breadline. We managed to keep it going. It was, it was amazing when really. we were able to keep going for that long. We did two Edinburgh fringe festivals. Then I went off to Birmingham and I did an MA in playwriting because I was still kind of convinced that you know that was that was going to be my path. I was going to be a writer. Um. And then I came back to London from Birmingham and some, a friend, well, it's interesting. This is an interesting connection. So um, a chap called Rob Curry, who was running a theatre company at that time, uh, was looking for somebody at very last minute to be in a, in a play he was doing on the fringe. And somebody had suggested, uh, I vaguely knew Rob, and somebody suggested that he should audition me um, because I used to be an actor, apparently, mm-hmm. which, I, which is true. Um, and he came to see me and... He offered me the part, uh, and I went and did this show that Rob was directing. Interestingly, Rob is now who I work with when I make my documentaries. He's my co-director when I when when I do that work. So our relationship kind of begins there, and has and has and has grown and developed and, and evolved since then. But when when I did that show with Rob on the Fringe, I think it just it kind of rekindled something uh, in me about the acting, and I realized that, that I had missed it but I'd probably benefited from being away from it for a while as well. I felt like I was coming back to it slightly refreshed. And so, I, yeah, I did that show and I thought, well, can I, can I get an agent here? How difficult could that be? And luckily I'd met a few agents through the shows that my theatre company had been putting on. And one of them I approached um, because I, I got on well uh, socially and she said, okay, well, I, I didn't know you were an actor. I'll, I'll take you on and start putting you up for stuff. So it was, it was, it was in a way that simple for me, which is why when young actors often ask me about how they should get started in the business, I'm like the worst person to ask, say, because that, that is not how it normally 
works. It's like I knew somebody who was an agent and I asked if they'd take me on and they said yes. I mean, and to her credit, she she would then put me up for stuff to see if I was any good and I started to get I started to get jobs. So, you know, she was she basically said to me, I you've got an interesting face, you know, I think I can sell that look. And so she started putting me up for commercials initially. So that's how I first come into any kind of dealings with advertising in the commercial world. I was only really getting seen for commercials when I first started out. And I was very happy with that because it meant, you know, usually it was one, two days work. It paid very nicely. Thank you very much. And I still had lots of time to carry on running the theatre company. So the first commercial I ever did was for, um, it was for Curry's, I think. And we filmed it somewhere in West London. This is a weird kind of... Uh, offshoot where the conversation should be going, Charles. But my main memory of that shoot is being in the either the makeup or the costume truck, and this is all kind of new experience to me, to being on a on a film set. And I was so I, was with, I think it was with the makeup girls, and they were talking about um, Rowan Atkinson, the actor. I was very very aware of the actor Rowan Atkinson. There might, might, might be people who've never heard of. Um, and basically talking about the size of his member. Apparently he's very, very well blessed down there, is um, Rowan Atkinson. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, that, that is when we side this conversation, that's not where I wanted to take the chat <laughs> at all. It's where I hoped it would end. But, uh, that, that's, where we, that's where we come to. But that's, that's yeah, weirdly, that's the, that's the main bit of that job that I, that I remember, is that chatting in the makeup truck it's it's um it's interesting because i i think there's few people i've spoken to on call to action who probably wouldn't also say they're the worst person to give people advice on how to break into whatever industry it is they're in but but one of the things that i have flagged with you tim is that you at least had a seemingly a lot of awareness that you wanted to be an actor albeit it then kind of evolved slightly into writing and then maybe stepped back into acting or has obviously stepped back into acting did writing just feel more accessible when you when you started to follow that path or did you stop to believe that you were an actor or was it just simply a case of not really knowing because i think that's certainly something that comes up time and time again where you can't know what you don't know and actually that stage of life needs to be more about discovering than it is about knowing the answers i mean i think that's got a lot uh, got a lot to do with it you know it's um it's definitely a void of discovery those those years for sure um, and you kind of, you know, there's the argument you have to make a few wrong turns to kind of find, uh, to find the right one, really. But in a way, but also in a way, that's a kind of, it's almost a blessing of being of a different generation. Because if I think about my parents' generation, you didn't get the chance to mess around like that. You made a decision, mm. you stuck to it. You probably met somebody, got married, started a family, and you worked in that job until you retired. You know. So, you know, in a, in a way, I, I kind of, you know, I'm early 50s now and I consider myself to probably be in that first, certainly first or second generation of, of people who really had a bit more freedom to to kind of think about what do I actually want to do with my... And I was certainly the first one in my my family to have ever really kind of been told that, you know, what do you want to, you know, what, what are your dreams, what are your hopes, you know, you can, do you want to pursue them? We, we will you know, support you, back you with that. 
particularly in a job like, you know, wanting to be an actor, you know. Uh, so I feel very blessed that, you know, my family were always very supportive uh, of that and gave me their, their backing to go for it. Uh, but I, the other, the, I mean, the other re- I'll tell you, the other reason why I, um, I think I shied away from acting as well is while I was still at college, I had a um, girlfriend at the time and I was really, I was really into her. And I was talking about going to live in London because I wanted to be an actor. And she said, I don't think I can come with you because I don't think I can sit and watch you wait for that phone to ring. I think it will destroy you and I think it will destroy us. That stayed with me, that 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 idea. And so my decision to start the theatre company was really about trying to do something that was a bit more proactive, you know, and I think that is a, that is a problem about being an actor, you know. You can't, I'm going to say you can't act on your own. You couldn't act on your own. We'd, I'm going back to mid-90s now. You can act on your own now. You can go on TikTok. Do you know what I mean? I just, it's just a current now as I'm saying that. That's not even true anymore. There are ways to generate material and get it out there on your own in a way that just it just was not when I graduated. There wasn't it just it literally did not exist. And that old. That that did not exist. You know, you had to go through the traditional channels, theatre, T V, film. And they all, to be honest, they all looked Quite, quite, you know, very difficult. Theatre, I could understand, which is why I set the theatre company up. Uh, I could understand how that worked. I, I could get my head around it. But film and TV, even at that age, just felt like, how do you even get there? What is it? It still felt, to some degree, this magic box in the corner that you know. I have no idea how that, how you get into it. I didn't know. You know, I grew up in in Oxfordshire. I didn't know anybody who worked in film and TV. Um, you know, it was my, my family. There was no one I could talk to about it. It was how did I, I, I re- honestly had no real idea how you did it. I, I knew that you probably had to come to London. You probably had to get an equity card. Didn't, as it turned out, and probably get an agent. You know, those are as much as I really understood about it. So, yeah, I definitely shied away from that. For I think it was two, well, two, three years when I first came to London. And yeah, got very lucky with getting a, an agent without even really uh, trying. I think it's important to acknowledge luck, though. I think I think it's one of those weird topics that people feel like they can't acknowledge or shouldn't acknowledge that it's somehow cheating. But I think um, yeah. I think it plays a role in, in everyone's life, of course. Did you when you did your ad with Curry's? Did that start something off as a? Because I don't I don't know quite how it works. Because obviously we're picturing a, a, a life or a career that's that's very far away from say a nine to five office gig. But do you have like different layers of work? So you started having opportunities to do ads. Was that something that then enabled you to then do your own writing and your own acting elsewhere, or was advertising something that actually you thought this is I'm I'm enjoying this and I can do more of this. To be to be honest, it was it was it seemed to me like um, a fun and easy way to make money and give myself enough time to carry on doing the other stuff. Really, that's that's, yeah. that's the honest the honest answer for sure. Um, and 
slowly over time, my agent started to put me up for roles in on TV and and in films. And I was a bit kind of, are you sure about that? Because I feel like I can do the ad- advertising thing. I feel like I'm doing okay there, but I'm still not sure, you know, an actor's is actual, you know, script with kind of emotional depth or whatever. You know, I'm, not, I'm still not entirely convinced I can pull that off. And she was really, you know, it was kind of her really kind of pushed me that way. Because to be honest, I was really quite happy doing the, the adverts and, and carry on carrying on writing and what and then kind of what shifted i guess is as i did more um tv work i got to meet actors and cinematographers and and, and sound recordists to the extent that then i began to think well hang on can i start making my own films now with the contacts that i've made here and the experience that that i've gained and i and i you know slowly the the theater thing receded into the background and I and I started to still basically it was still kind of the same working model it was if I can earn the money here I can carry on doing the writing although you know what became directing ultimately as well uh, over here it was um you know one kind of um supplemented the other but the one that was doing the supplementing was also really enjoyable yeah it was like a win 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 really and I suppose, I mean, this could be something that people in advertising like me tell ourselves to make it out like we're not just frustrated artists in some instances. But but you've got, I mean, you mentioned Rowan Atkinson earlier. I'm not going to mention why again necessarily. But no, please. But I, with Rowan Atkinson, I'm sure you'll remember his Barclay card ads that he did, which was kind of the the start of a of a character he then took into film Toast. um and so there are there are adverts that do become these they kind of bleed into culture don't they i mean you've got a few i mean i've mentioned 118 runners already yeah do you have any kind of level of enjoyment or satisfaction from that or is it really different to when you act on a stage or on screen i mean it's interesting you mentioned that barclay cards advert because i would actually argue that the, the actual adverts are better than the either the films that he made based on that character and i'm thinking also ted uh, ted lasso was they were originally um commercials weren't they i think you ever really seen those they're, they're, and they're, they're brilliant those original commercials are, are the show is very good as well but the commercials again arguably better than the the show i would say so look for sure there have been some ads i've done that have been really um f- fulfilling and one the 118 ones would definitely would definitely be up there and you're right they kind of they crossed over into popular culture um you know uh whereas you know i don't know i wouldn't put a statistic on it but probably most most of the commercials i did were kind of look but it just would would just basically i did you know i did it i did it for the for the paycheck you know and i think i mean i have this kind of slightly concerned i'm being too blunt about this but um I sometimes think when I watch actors that I know or respect in in an advert, I'm always more forgiving because I think, well, you've probably done that for the money. Fair enough. We all, you know, you need to pay bills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas if you if you're seen in a bad a bad piece of TV or drama, you have to assume that you know they've read the script and thought that it was good. Uh, and it's like, well, why did you do that? That was awkward. At least you did that, which was maybe not great as well, but you got paid nicely. So, I, you know, some, some ads, it's, it's, it's a totally a, uh, a mixed bag. And 
there are definitely some adverts that I'm really that I'm really proud of, and some you know and some great people who worked on those ads with me. Some of whom here's a nice story. Um, I did a commercial for AIB Bank in Ireland. And it ended, it was a Christmas ad and it ended up running for, I think, at least two or three years consecutively in the end. And I used to get recognized for this ad by any, any Irish people who were in London, often on the tube. They would say, are you the guy from the AIB Bank commercial? Which, and it was only Irish people who, who knew this advert, but it was obviously like a big, a big favorite over there. And, um, I then many years later, I did, I did. There's a film called Luckout, which has got um, Guy Pearce in it, Mike from Neighbours to a certain generation. It was a, it's a sci it's a sci-fi um, film set on a on a, a prison orbiting around the Earth, and I got I, I I was asked if I would uh, if I would want to do this this film this Lockout film, and I was I was like, well, yeah, all right, so I like it, but I like a bit of sci-fi. Uh, is there a script? Do they want me to audition? It's like no, no. It, this is it's an offer. I'm like, you, what? Are you? Sh they don't want me to audition. No, no. It's a it's a straight offer for this feature film, which is not that does not happen to me very often at all, if ever. And I was really confused by this. I was like, it's got Guy Pearce in, right? <laughs> and Luke Besson is the executive producer. They don't want me to audition. No, Tim, they really don't. It's, just, it's an offer. Do you want to do it? Well, I mean, obviously, yes, let's let's do it. And it, we were filming in Serbia, and I arrived in Serbia still kind of thinking, is this some elaborate, you know, joke? What's what's going on here? Right? Have, they, did, did, have they got the right guy? I mean, is it some other Tim they were after? I, 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 you know, I'll play it cool. And I, I got into the to the studios... And into the room came uh, this Irish cinematographer, James Mathay. And it was like, what, what are you doing here? He said, well, I, I'm one of the co-writers on the film. I said, what? But I thought you were a cinematographer. And he, he had worked on this AIB bank commercial with me. And I'd got on well with him. We'd chatted. And it, apparently he was a writer as well. I didn't know that. And he had written this part with me in mind and convinced Luke Besson that, you know, he didn't need to see anybody else for the part. So I said, right, I've got this guy. He did a commercial for a bank that I did years ago. It'll be fine. It'll be perfect. Perfect foil for Guy Pearce. <laughs> so, you know, that's a nice story of doing, of doing an advert that that, uh, that led to something quite uh, quite magical. You landed in Serbia before you'd discovered that link. Yeah, no, absolutely. Seriously, I'm, I'm at the studios in Serbia, still not quite sure how I got this part until he walked in the door. And it took me a moment to kind of place him as well because it was it would have been a while ago and I didn't expect, you know, I'd, whenever I'd seen him before, he'd had a camera on his shoulder as well. So, but yeah, that, that, that's, yeah that is, that's a true story. That's amazing. How does that differ to getting the role in, say, Afterlife? Well, again, what you've done, what you've done, what we're talking about here is, I just, I just said that this, this, this does not happen to me, kind of getting straight onlers for jobs. But um, Afterlife is actually another example um, of that, of that happening. 
and I, my my mother-in-law likes to tell this story that I'd been told to go. It was a new Ricky Gervais series. They sent me the scripts, and I had a I had an audition to go to. It was not in the normal places. It was at Ricky's offices in in Hampstead. Here's the address. You need to buzz this bell, and you know, call up, and they'll let you in. And so I went along there, and I thought I was going for an audition for this part. And when I got there, I walked into this room, and there were lots of people sat around in a circle, and it was Ricky, and it was Diane Morgan was there, and, and, and Tony Way, and, and basically the cast of Afterlife was sat in a circle reading the script. And I was shown a seat. Um, to sit in and they were reading the script through and it got to the scene with I think it must have been not the first scene with with my character with Julian M but maybe one of the scenes when he sat talking to, to Ricky and I was just expected to read in when it got to that part of the script and we did it and Ricky turned to the producer and said see I told you it'd be perfect for this and I came out of there and called my mother-in-law, who was looking after my um, baby daughter at the time, and I said, I think, I think, I've, I think I'm in it. I think I'm in the show, I, but I'm not for sure. It felt, didn't feel like an audition. It felt like a read-through because all the other cast were there. And so I rang my agent, and she was like, oh, so it was an audition. I said, well, it really didn't feel like one. It felt like, that I, you know, can you check? And, uh, yeah, so that that was something which, again, Ricky, had, I don't know if he'd written that part with me in mind, but he definitely, you know, thought that I could do it. And that, I think, the story of that, though, to, to kind of give its full explanation, is 15, however many years previously to that, I had met Ricky... Uh, an audition for a show which nobody had heard of called The Office. And I went back and had a recall for The Office. And then I went back, I think, a third time, and I was told it's between you and one other guy for the role of Gareth. Um, and I remember sitting at BBC TV Centre, as it was then, the old wood-panelled, BBC TV Centre and looking around the room thinking, wow, it's me and one other guy. And looking across the room and sat over the other side of the room was Mackenzie Crook. And I was like, oh, that's, a, that's that Mackenzie Crook guy. He'd been on a show called The Eleven O'Clock Show. So I was aware I was aware of his face and I thought, hey, he must be up for Gareth as well. Oh, great. I've got this. I'm better than him. I've got this. And history records it somewhat differently. So, yeah, Mackenzie got that. But I think that's how arrogant I used to be. But that's maybe a good thing. I was very confident back then with my abilities. But the story that I was told is that Ricky wanted me and Stephen Merchant wanted Mackenzie, or maybe it was the other way around. I, you know, I can't remember now, but it was kind of, you know, ultimately Mackenzie got that, got that gig. And, but, you know, I, I think I, I had stayed in Ricky's thoughts all that time. And then, you know, ultimately, although it was like 15, 16 years later, 
uh, it was worth the wait because you know it was a a great yeah. car that uh, that had oh, it's brilliant fun, yeah. you know yeah prob you know arguably the thing I'm most most proud of probably because the the show feels so brilliantly British for for various reasons. And I don't know, I want to ask you this, but I don't know if it's a bit of a stretch that I'm making here. Because I mentioned in the intro that you like the weird and enduring folk customs. Yeah. This funny island we live in. And it's led to the wonderful work of the Way of the Morris, which again, hopefully we'll, we'll get into in a bit more detail soon too. Afterlife is also full of weird and enduring folk. I mean, the cast is is outstanding. Um, and I And I think there's something maybe it's weird and enduring with the way that British people grieve versus other cultures. Is there is there any similarities there in terms of that and the main thread of Afterlife and what you're interested in in your own documentaries and work? Yeah, I've never really uh, thought about that, I don't think, Giles, about whether they do tread, you know, on similar ground. I mean, they're definitely... You know the idea of, I mean, the idea of Englishness, and let's let's you know let's say that rather than Britishness. Um, you know, the idea of Englishness is is a tricky subject matter for sure, and it, it's um, you know, and it's fraught with with dangers as well, historical dangers and contemporary um, dangers, I think. But in terms of Ricky kind of doubling down on on something that looks, smells, and tastes the English um, for sure. That afterlife is 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 very much that, and you know maybe that it's one of the reasons why it's been so such a global success. I think I don't. I mean, I you know I don't know. You can try and run the the figures on these things to to work out why it's been such a massive success all over the world. And maybe that is because people get, you know, a, a sense, a flavour, a slice of, of England from watching it, but but also not not a kind of Richard Curtis slice of England either. It feels it feels just feels a bit more earthy, probably, and a bit more uh, you know fr you know fragile and broke broken. Yeah, I think that's probably why I I enjoyed it so much. And then in terms of a success, you're right. I think it's either two or three years running. It's been the most viewed Netflix comedy series. Yeah, I mean, sort of. phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And it's also interesting that it kind of it follows the the kind of old English sitcom structure of only six episodes each. Each, I won't say season, each series. Is uh, is only six episodes, you know, which is a real anomaly in today's TV, particularly on a streaming service. I would imagine. Um, I don't know. I would imagine Ricky had to kind of fight to a certain degree to say, "Well, no, it's only six. Uh, because you know, the Americans, for instance, are definitely not used to something being as short as that. But then, what you what you end up being able to do with something like that is well you know I can do six if you want more than that you're going to have to get a team of writers in and at that point does it kind of lose its you know identity to some degree it's not going to be 
all written by Ricky Gervais if you do that. There's no way I can write 12 episodes. Yeah. Do six. Ricky has always, in my experience of working with him and not working with him, has always stuck to his guns about the way he wanted to do stuff. And I think that stems from getting into it a bit later in life. Because, I mean, the story goes that, you know, they, the office was, was, the BBC were not sure about the office. They basically said, we'll make it, but Ricky, you can't be in it because you've never done TV before. And you and Stephen definitely can't direct it because you've never directed TV before. And they basically said to the BBC, okay, we won't do it then. Which nobody, I don't get anybody had ever said that to them before. But they were like, yeah, well, we'd, we want to do it this way. We'll direct it and Ricky's in it. Or we, ju we, we, just won't, we just won't do it. I mean, I'll just go and do something else. And I think, you know, he's... He was probably, you know, the same thing with, with Afterlife to some degree. I want to do it this way. And I've earned, I've, now I've actually earned the right to do it that way as well. So, you know. Yeah, hats off for doing it when um, maybe it didn't carry as much weight as it would do now. But, I mean, for sure. And, you know, the other thing is there's a, there's a, there's a very um, obvious reason why a lot of Afterlife is set in, um, well, it's not set, but it's filmed in, in Hampstead. It's because that's where Ricky lives, and it meant that he got to get up a bit later, and he used to go home for lunch and come back in his shorts in the afternoon. He must come back in his shorts. I've had a shower. He said, I've had a shower. I've shorts on. <laughs> I've scheduled it so I'm not in any scenes in the afternoon. Let's have some fun. I'll raise it that way. Was it fun? Was it fun? It looks like it must have been fun. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, so much fun. I mean, it did obviously my my part is not necessarily a fun part, but it was it was definitely fun to do and a fun set to be on. And and, and Ricky is he is a bit like a child in a, in a sweet shop, which is so sweet. He's still kind of so much in love with the idea that wow, uh, you sometimes look at the monitor and go, oh my god, that looks brilliant. It looks like a, a proper TV show. Wow. <laughs> It looks excellent. Brilliant. Have you done that? That's the lighting, is it? Ah, oh, excellent. All right, yeah. What are the lines again? And you just go and, you know, you would never overshoot stuff. Ricky, you know, Ricky directs, in my experience, he directs from, with, you know, within the scene. There's not, there's not a lot of uh, notes or uh, direction, if you like, before you do the scene, you know, particularly the scenes I'm in with him. You know, he's... He's in that scene with you, and you're taking your kind of your tone from from him, if you like. And I, you know, I, that, that you know, obviously the show has had an immense amount of uh, critical success and feedback. But I think one of the things that often doesn't get talked about is quite how good Ricky is in it. Yeah, I think he's brilliant in it. It's such a strong measured performance and I'm not sure he always gets enough credit the act for the acting that he does in it. He's in he's in most of it. There's nowhere to hide in that performance. And yeah. He's you know, I've never thought of hats off to the fella. Hats off to a reading there. Exactly that. I've never thought about that actually, but I can think of very few scenes that he's not in. Is he in all? And he's in most I mean, yeah, he's in most of it. So, you know, that, that in itself is, you know, that's hard work. 
uh, if you're done, you know, and he's responsible for every, you know, he's written it, he's directed it. It's, 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 you know, it's a lot of pressure on your shoulder. So again, to his credit, he was, you know, he was that, that cackle with the teeth showing, you know, was, was very visible, you know, all day, every day. It's, you know, he hasn't lost that. It's, it's still, it's still fun for him. He, he enjoys going to work and making TV, yeah. you know. I want to ask, we've got, we've got a list of questions to, to get onto, so I'm slightly mindful of, um, of, the, of the time. Yes. I did want to ask about what's next for you, because I heard rumours of a career pivot of sorts. You know, I've always um, tried to do um, more than one thing, if you like, as, we, as we've talked about, you know, uh, acting and, and, and filmmaking and documentary making, you know, and I've made short films. And I just, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I, I have, I have dalliance with the, with the advertising world over those years, main, you know, mainly from doing stuff in front of the camera, but also I've made, uh, test commercials and, uh, and promos and things, but it's not something I've ever really felt able to fully, um, you know, c commit to. So it's kind of where. I think, you know, and I know you've had a lot of guests on recently, you've talked about the kind of the the pandemic and, you know, that opportunity that it that it the positive, if you like, opportunity it gave people to put a pause on things and to maybe kind of rethink things and you know, um change tact if if possible. And I think, you know, so it stems there this idea that, you know, I've been doing this for a long time time now you know and is there a way that i can use the skill set that, that i've that i've learned over the years doing advertising from doing tv from doing film from writing plays you know is there a way i can bring that with me into um into the advertising world or the business world you know are there other avenues that i can that i can be exploring here i feel i feel kind of energized in a way to maybe start you know a new phase of my career whatever that might be you know that word career is kind of I think actors often consider that a dirty word but um yeah it feels like I, I, I don't so I don't kind of quite know what it might be or what form it might take you know answers on a postcard please but yeah, if it feels like I, you know, I'm, I feel ready to 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 commit maybe to something, to something else too, because I think these things can work both ways. You know, is there something you know that I have learned on the set of Game of Thrones, you know, that I can bring to uh, a commercial for a betting agency, you know? But but likewise, you know, is there something that I learned on the set of an advert for? A betting agency that I can take with me back into film or TV or documentary or something. I think I feel like you know I've I've always had a number of hats that I can kind of freely take off and put on, and they've always kind of cross fertilized each other in my experience. I've never kind of really tried to explore doing it in in the advertising or business world. 
Well, I, I think um, I think you're right in terms of wearing all those hats, and maybe it's just a case of wearing one a bit more intentionally than than in the past. But certainly in my experience, and we were talking about how you found your in your early days, how you found the right path. And the, the, the point that I think is consistently true is that the most talented people I, I tend to come across in, in my own you know, life outside of this is these people tend to have taken a scenic route and to quote, this is a, I've loved this quote because it's a very clumsy quote which feels comfortable for me to say. There's a quote from Dave Trott, which is the most interesting people know a lot of stuff about stuff. And uh, I think the, the experiences that you have and, and the worlds that you've walked in with you know significant overlaps into the advertising and creative worlds that that's certainly true yeah i've got a couple of listener questions for you tim i'm grateful you got any it's nice we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pods host giles edwards on 0189 952 007 only the other day, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on strategy and brand identity. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Ooh, yeah, of course you didn't, Bill. So asking the Here general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, we've got two, starting with Greg. Greg asks, you've made documentaries about Morris dancers and folk singing, but if you could make a documentary about anything in the world and money were no object, what would it be and why? I mean, there's always peculiarities to explore for sure. It's interesting to kind of, because I've always got kind of, projects on on the go so my my initial thought is you know if i had if money was no object which of those um would i put that money would i put that money in into making which is kind of where my head's at with it and so it's not kind of necessarily answering greg's question exactly but there's a film that i'm working on at the moment which is about it's a kind of attempt to tie a lot of these curious um British English customs together. It's a film about a folklorist uh, called Doc Rowe, who's basically spent his whole life, or certainly the last 50 years, traveling the length and breadth of the country, uh, documenting strange, weird, and wonderful folk customs. And he has this massive archive of material uh, up in Whitby in, in Yorkshire. Um, and so we have been, we've basically, me and Rob Curry, who I mentioned earlier, spent we spent a calendar year traveling around with Doc to these to a lot of these events, a lot of events which I'd uh, heard about but had never been to. So it was an excuse as well to finally get to go to some of them, um, kind of on Doc's coattails, if you like. And so we're making you know we're making a film about about him and about the customs that he visits and has. I mean, he goes to these he goes to these things, you know year in year out and has done for 50 years he's got 50 years worth of footage of the same thing it's it's like a stuff is it's a national treasure this 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 um the stuff he has and it's it needs to be so on one level the film is about making that clear that this stuff needs to be protected doc is in his uh how old is he now mid 70s doc so he you know he's he's very aware that 
when he isn't here anymore where does this where does this stuff go it's you know it's arguably of not just national but you know global importance this this stuff in terms of its documentation of of the of these things which are which are, which are you know deep without getting into specifics of each one you know they are they're deeply fascinating that um that we, they still exist in this tiny this tiny little island that mm. we live on there there are more folk customs surviving than i think anywhere else in europe europe has some amazing ones as well for sure but in terms of the kind of depth and wealth of them, England, Britain just seems to, I don't, there's just so many of them. I'm still finding ones out like every week. There's one that I've never heard of. And it goes on, you know, once every 11 years in this village somewhere outside, I don't know, in Staffordshire somewhere, you know, and they're all, they're all local and, have, you know, been kept going by, the passion that people have for these things, you know, they're, 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 it's basically this invisible side of England. I really, I, I feel that most people are, are, are not aware of, you know, and it goes on most weekends. There'll be something going on somewhere which can trace its roots back hundreds of years, and there's a reason why it's survived, and people still do it. And it might not be the same reason. They do it now that they did 400 years ago, but it still means something to those people in that community to to do it. And I think there's something about the fact that um, most of most, if not all, of these customs come from a working class background. You know, it's people uh, expressing something about themselves. They're you know they're allowed to do it one day of the year. They're kind of allowed to take back what is theirs on their streets you know and so there's a real there's a kind of fierce a pride pride about these things i think that i find i just find deeply uh deeply fascinating and they're not interested in when when they're, they're purists they're not even interested in who's come to 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 see it you know the audience these these things do gather quite a crowd of people but they're not doing it for the crowd they're doing it for them and there's a reason why they do it. And there's a reason, you know, that connects to to myself and the Morris dancing film that I made, Way of the Morris. In the course of that film, I end up going from a non-believer or a non-dancer to somebody who dances the Morris. And it's something that I, that I still do uh, to this day. You know, that's for those who have seen the film or might see the film in in the future after listening to this you know it's not art i'm kind of giving away the end of the film but um it's not artifice for the sake of the film that i end up dancing it's something that profoundly i felt i needed to do and it's something which i've continued to do since within the first ad there's a clip of you being asked if you're going to dance and you categorically but I must just quickly say, in, in, in one of the other trailers, I think it's the second trailer, there's a brilliant voiceover, and I don't actually know, if I'm, if I'm honest, Tim, if it's you or someone else, I assume it's someone else, who quite crudely says, on Morris dancing specifically, you've got to ask yourself, what's going on there? <laughs> and, and it's just such a lovely line, and I suspect that's what most people think when they, when they see Morris dancing, if they haven't watched Way of the Morris, of course. But it is deeply interesting, and it's amazing how deep the roots are. It's 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 so it's so much more deep and much more interesting than most people give it credit for. 
you know, it's become Morris. The main reason I kind of wanted to make that film about Morris dancing in a way was because it felt like a poisoned chalice, if you like. You know, it was like, how are you going to do this? You know, because everyone's just laughing at this thing. And it, and it strikes me that Morris dancing has become the punchline to a joke, national joke, that nobody can remember the setup to. It's just, if you say Morris dancing, there's, there's just a lot, people will just laugh. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the, what the context is. It's like those two words together instantly guffaws. And, and I grew up around Morris dancing. I grew up in a village where it was, you know, a very prominent part of village life, but I had always shunned it, never wanted to do it, moved to London, never talked about it, was embarrassed about it. It's my being my roots. And I mean, my route into wanting to connect with Morris dancing comes from living in London in a multicultural city and having friends who are not, uh, certainly not from, you know, the countryside in England. And his heritage is, you know, from elsewhere, not from these septed isles, kind of interested in it, kind of saying, well, what is this Morris dancing? I've never seen it. Tell me about it, you know. So it's through kind of through other people's interest and other people's eyes, I was able to kind of reassess what this thing is because I was as guilty as anybody of just thinking it was a joke, you know, and somebody to be embarrassed. Embarrassed. I like the idea that you saw it as a poison chalice because people dismiss it as such a, you know, silly, I suppose, for want of a better word. Yeah, because yeah. I, because they don't understand it. I did. I, I really wanted to kind of confront it. And I knew, I knew it was, a tr it was, it was a potentially, you know, dodgy, uh, sticky wicket to be messing around on. But that's kind of why I wanted to, to, to do it, really, and, and give it some gravitas, some depth and... Uh, you know, there's a very personal story attached to it as well, which if you watch the film, that really happened to me, the kind of revelation as to, as to why it was such a big deal in my in my village. And it, and it, it basically is connections to the, the, the horrors of the First World War, which when I found out that part of the history of Morris dancing, it just fundamentally changed um, everything. For me, I think I think to be fair, the reason why most people laugh at Morris dancing is, you know, the stereotypical image of a beer-bellied uh, man in his fifties uh, dancing around some handkerchiefs. And uh, the, the the reason why that's become the stereotype is that there was a massive, massive revival in uh, folk customs, folk music, Morris dancing in the um, early to mid seventies. And so the people who were involved in reviving Morris dancing at that time are now that age. But if you go back and watch, and I have footage of this in Where the Morris, I've got Super 8 footage of them back in the early 70s when they're 20, 21 years old. It looks, I mean, it just looks different. It's, it's, it's not old men prancing around. It's like virile young long hairs with big, they look like, they look like the Beatles crossing Abbey Road, except they got sticks in their hands and baldricks, and when they jump, they get up pretty high, and it just looks different. Um, so that's part of the problem. And actually, Morris dancing is actually going through a real kind of renaissance at the moment. There's a lot of women's teams that have come through in the last ten years, and that's kind of changing the landscape a lot. 
So, yeah, it's you know. Did did it travel well? What what did people overseas think of it? Any other audience? Amazingly well, Charles. Amazingly well. The Americans, in particular, seem to love it. We premiered at uh, South by Southwest in Texas in 20, 2011. Uh, and I got to take my uncle and my dad with me, who were both in the film and who were both former Morris dancers. Uh, and just the idea that we were in Texas with a, with a film that, you know, we had made for very little money and nobody had asked us to make this film was being shown, um, you know, at this prestigious film festival still tickles me to this to this day that that even happened and then um it it, it did it did really well uh the guardian heralded it as one of like the british uh breakthrough films of, of the festival i was championed as one of the new faces of uh british film alongside shall we say in that same article the other people they're talking about are ben wheatley um uh adam i'm trying to get his name right from adam and joe adam cornish yeah. not joe no joe cornish not adam it's adam buxton i knew i was going to do that wrong yeah. but joe cornish uh a brilliant documentary filmmaker called genie finley who made uh a great documentary about the last season of game of thrones called the last watch which is brilliant. So Jeannie was in that list. And then the other person in that list was um, uh, David Bowie's son, Duncan Jones. So, you know, it's quite prestigious company. And not only that, but it was a, a film about Morris dancing. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Lest we not forget. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Well, we're going to link to that. I'm going to link to Ballad of Shirley Collins. We're going to link to all of your ads and everything we can find. <laughs> to be honest, it'll be in this episode's show notes. The um the second question is it seems very appropriate given that was a long answer to to Greg's question, wasn't it? I'm not even sure it was an answer. But anyway, sorry, what's what's the second question? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing Greg's got his money's worth. <laughs> uh given your career pivot, this this feels very appropriate. So this question is from Sunita, who asks if you could lend any wisdom from the world of playwriting to any copywriters listening on how to write good stuff, what would it be? Cool. Um, it's been a long time since I actually wrote any theatre, but I think I would I would say the overwrite, overwrite everything, and and then whittle it and then whittle it down. I used to when I was writing a play, um, and it's been a while since I wrote one. I would just put so much stuff down I, I kind of began to describe it like making I don't know like a, a gumbo or a bula beige one of those big kind of stews where you let's get everything in let's get everything in here let's get it all in the pot and then we're going to slowly slowly boil this down until we've got the, the essence of it but it's, it's going to take a little while and we might not ultimately won't maybe even need some of these ingredients the metaphor breaks down then because you can't take the ingredient out of the soup or the stew. But just just that idea of um, just stick it all in there to begin with, and 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 just let it let it um, bubble and boil and and simmer and and then you know ultimately you'll get the essence. So my my you know my plays would start off 
first draft would be completely unwieldy. Five hours, you'd have to try and uh, knock it down. I think, I mean, one of the advantages of being a playwright, or certainly in the way I was in that I ran a theatre company as well, is that I was always able to then kind of do that with the actors. I used to, that was always my favourite bit, was like, I would bring stuff in and we would workshop it with the actors, you know, and you'd, from there you would be able to kind of take the edges off and kind of find what was working. Would you do that via performance as well, so you could see how it performed and then tweak it as you, as you went? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 one of the most stupid things I probably ever did in my life was we booked a slot at the Edinburgh Festival in 96, I think it was, with a show that I hadn't written. <laughs> uh, and paid for it with money we didn't have. And then kind of had to retrofit back from there to think, well, okay, we need to start rehearsing there. So that means you have to have the script by then, Tim. Yeah, is that going to work? Um, well, I'll have to, won't it? So, yeah, I mean, I think I had half a play ready at the start of rehearsals, and I would be bringing stuff in to, you know, every day and we would workshop stuff and see what was working in it and we, we got away with it by the skin of our by the skin of our teeth. But but also, you know, there was a very real reason for, for doing it. There was a you know, dead you know, deadlines. I'm sure everyone always says this but deadlines you know, ultimately so so important. If you put a line in the sand, you know, so it's gotta be done by then. And that goes back way back, you know, to doing essays you didn't want to do at school you know but if, if there is a line in the sand you'll 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 do it you'll get you'll get something you you have to have that and i think if there isn't a deadline it can be really it can be really tricky that's something i think i i struggle with at the moment with you know wanting to write um screenplays for feature films you know without any kind of guarantee that you'll ever get made i find it very difficult to um to motivate myself so I would always look for deadlines. In fact, when I won the National Student Playwright of the Year Award, that was mainly to do with, I, there was a on competition, there was a deadline for the script to be delivered by, and I thought, well, that's a good thing. That gives me a reason to, to do this, and, and also a deadline to finish it by. So there was definitely a period in my life back then when I would look for things like that. Um, and obviously, if you're, if you're writing copy, then you, you will definitely have a, a deadline for that as well. But... Um, yeah, throw it, just throw it all in there. That's the same with documentaries, really, as well, Giles, you know. I've, it's a big difference, I guess, b- between shooting a narrative piece from a script, which, I'm, which I've done, to, you know, what I'm more, do more of now, which is making a documentary where, you, you know, you overshoot to then find the narrative in the edit. You know, the edit is where you do the writing. That is, I consider that writing now. So when people say, "Do you still write?" I say, "Well, I I do, but I do more editing now. But that is a form of that's a form of writing." I was going to actually expand Sunita's question before her, uh, or, or AKA get another kind of similar question in. Yeah. Partly because I imagine a lot of the value that you could lend the industry is also stems from the films and and your stuff you've done on screen so we've already talked about afterlife yeah and i suspect that the way that afterlife was directed was a lot more relaxed than game of thrones which i have to bring up mm. because i think some of our listeners would be a bit pissed off at me and i would, wouldn't be doing my job properly if i didn't talk about the red wedding yes that famous scene but from what i understand of how that was directed it was very very different and i'm not saying that 
afterlife was any lesser because it was more relaxed. Can you talk a bit more about that difference and, and, and how that played out for the Red For sure. I mean, I, mean I, I like to think that, you know, I, I, I worked on, you know, all levels of kind of film sets um, from, you know, no budget shorts um, to, you know, idents through to TV, through to, you know, Game of Thrones, which is probably kind of pinnacle in terms of how massive that 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 show is and was at the time that I you know it really had already grown into like the the beast that that we all know it as now and you know it's a it's a it's it was a well-oiled machine and yeah much um really you know quite different from afterlife which you know I said was quite relaxed and that came from Ricky but um the Game of Thrones was 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 very different, much more intense, a lot riding on it. And something that I've not really experienced anywhere else is that you would uh, you would rehearse the day before you filmed. So, you know, much more like theatre. And people will always tell you they, they don't have time or budget to do this on a, on a film or TV uh, show, but with Game of Thrones, you came in the day before you you were to shoot. You would rehearse the scene, uh, but you wouldn't rehearse it as much for the technical aspects as you would for the acting aspects. In fact, more it was more for the technical aspects than than the acting, if you like, just so that they could work out all the camera angles, how you know a big scene was going to play out if there were special effects whatever you know so that on the day you came into film it was it was pretty well oiled and very very intensively shot lots and lots of coverage lots of coverage to the extent that you get to a point where you've said the lines so many times you just not even you, you don't know what you're saying anymore they're just kind of words dripping out of your mouth um and the red wedding scene in itself took a, a full week to shoot various stages the downside of that is that on the first day there's this beautiful banquet going on with real food on the table including fish and by the end of the week that food is still on that table and that fish is not smelling very nice by now. So it was a, it was a, quite a honk um, by the final day of filming. But what they what they did with that scene, and I, I you know I, I I told this story before, I'm sure. But you know the, what they did do, and this was to the benefit of the of the actors involved, particularly um, Michelle who played Cat, um, and Richard Madden who was was playing. Um, your Stark man, they they did shoot it in chronological order, which is obviously not always what what you do. But in terms of them and their kind of emotional arc, they 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 shot the whole stuff chronologically, so that when when I slit Cat's throat at the end, that that is Michelle's last moment on Game of Thrones. She knows that there's no more after this. So you know you you get what you get there cleverly as a as a you know as a producer director you know that you can tap into the emotion that she must be experiencing uh 
there as, as well as the character you know she can put that into the character uh because you're not going to then go back and do the beginning of the scene we've been through the scene and we'll leave that was that was the last thing that we shot was the the throat slit and her dropping out of out of frame and it was it was it was a very genuinely really powerful moment to be a part of because i was aware of it being michelle's last moment as well you know all i felt i remember feeling at the time was don't don't you be the one that messes this up tim you know there's so many moving parts here this is such a big deal all all you've got to do is walk into frame put that knife where it needs to be and pull it across the throat and then get out of there don't trip over anything <laughs> don't start loris dancing exactly <laughs> whatever you do don't put a little uh a caper in there and don't get your don't get your your hankies out tim keep those in your pocket and i think you know it shows that that that's that when i watched that scene myself back even though i knew it was going to happen even though i'd been there that whole week and part of that scene when i finally saw it on screen it 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 blew me away as well it was really you know really really powerful i think it transmitted the energy on set transmitted through the screen to the to the audience yeah yeah it must give you so much pleasure not going to sound perverse given the uh the throat slitting incident itself but it must give you so much pleasure to have been such a significant part of such a significant scene of such a significant show i mean it was just I saw, I'm a big fan of Viz, Tim, and I saw a brilliant Viz, Viz top tip, which was prepare your children for Game of Thrones by simply writing, and then he dies at the end of all of their Mr. Men books. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just the unpredictable yeah. nature yeah. of it. It was just yeah, so, yeah. like, just haven't seen anything like yeah. that before when nobody no. was safe. Nobody is safe. I know, that that is, it's, that's absolutely its strength. Because I, I started watching it when it first came on, and... I didn't. I didn't kind of go with it. I remember watching the first one, and then thinking, "Yeah, that's that's all right. It was fine." But I didn't carry on watching it. And friends did, and they said, "Did you carry on watching that Game of Thrones thing?" And I said, "I, I didn't. I didn't actually." And they said, "You know what happens at the end of the first series? They kill Sean Bean." Yeah. I'm like, "What? <laughs> what? The main character?" Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Okay, I'll go back and watch it. So you're right. You know that kind of no one is safe ethos is just absolutely baked baked into that that show, and I th I think that is why um, people loved it so much. I mean, for me, somebody of my generation, uh, and again, this actually goes back to one of my short films that I made. There was a, a sci-fi show called Blake Seven in the uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, and again without ruining it that they they die at the end and i was 11 sat there and again we remember this is a different time of watching television it's, you're not watching it on catch-up or streaming it it's on the bbc at that time on that day and you sit there as you know on mass throughout the country and watch it together and they all die at the end and i just i can remember turning to my dad and thinking what what the what is going dad 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 i've never seen this before and it's like the end of the for me again i'm, I'm 
the right age to have seen Empire Strikes Back in the cinema. You know, what, the end of that. It's like, are you serious? I've not seen this before. Why is Han Solo in carbon? What? Is he, his hands off? He's lost his hand and he's in carbon. Dad! Ask us aloud. But no, that's definitely, definitely one of the, one of the qualities. But you know, even even on Game of Thrones, there were very different styles of directing, but very different scenes. My first scene on Game of Thrones was just a quite a kind of uh, solid scene with lots of people sat around a table, and each of us kind of had our turn with the camera on us, and it slowly went around the table, and I was the last one to be shot of, out of everyone, and the director was really calm come in in between takes and whisper things in people's ears and I had no idea what notes they were being given until it was my turn and then uh, he would come in after every take and kind of just give you a little notice to do the scene in a different way and then I'll always remember this we, well, I don't know, we did about seven or eight takes came in after that crouched down next to me and said okay we've got all of those they're all great let's do one more however you want to do it. And I loved that. No idea if any of that take is, is in, the, in the finished scene or not, but just being given that opportunity as an actor on such a big show was, was, was lovely. And I, obviously I realized then that he'd been doing that to, to everybody. So there was him, but then on, on the Red Wedding, which is obviously quite a very different scene, there was an American um, director on that whose name I'll never forget because it's David Nutter. And he was basically behind the camera, energized, like shouting things like stab and kill and stab and kill and kill and stab and stab and kill and kill and stab and stab and stab. Just insane. This man was insane and well up for it. <laughs> and he could never remember my name, which um, he just kept calling me buddy all the time. Okay, buddy, 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 you, and then you come in, buddy, buddy, you come in. And you slit the throat. Okay, buddy, buddy. Okay, buddy. In you come. And then, yeah, he was just a force of nature, that guy. Yeah, he's done a lot of good stuff, David Nusser. Is there an official number for how many people were killed at the Red, Red Quezzers? I don't think so. Not that I've seen. That's who asked David Nutter. Nutter will know. I mean, if anyone knows, Nutter will know. That should be a phrase. If anyone knows, Nutter knows. Oh, that's brilliant. Right then, Tim, I suppose we'd better do the uh, final four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests starting with what advice would you give to your younger self i don't know just something simple i think like um you know keep dreaming keep believing it'll be worth it mostly keep stealing those comics you know <laughs> also i would say uh try spicy food earlier because you you will you will love it. I know you don't think you will, but you ultimately you ultimately will. I was I was you know well, well into my twenties. We twenty. Oh, I was well in my twenties before I had a curry, like a proper curry. Mm. Yeah, the, like my friends at college will will always always joke about that. We, in our first year at college, we went out for somebody's birthday. Um, we went to a curry house, and I had chicken and chips. M, shameful, shameful. Have you been making up for it ever since? I have tried to, yeah. Nice. Um, I'm interested in what number two will be because obviously we get a lot of the same things given our uh, marketing industry focus. But if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? 
I'm, I mean, I'm slightly wary about this one because actors are notorious for whinging anyway. But to some degree, I would say castings. Right. You know, and, and, and Afterlife is, a, is a, an example of that. Base, base, there, was, there was a casting director on Afterlife, absolutely. But a lot of the castings were made basically because Ricky, Ricky watches TV and he knows who he likes. Should we offer it to them? You know, and I think there could be more of that, just in terms of people have more of a, an idea about who's out there and people have show reels, you know, and there's sometimes it feels to me too many hoops to to jump through to kind of get apart sometimes when it's, you know, you, you can tell if that person will be right for it or not. And I certainly had that experience when I made my short films. It was, well, you know, should we ask them? They'd be great. I know what they can do. That that that'll work. I don't, don't need to don't need to read for it, audition for it. Just see if they're available. And I think when you get offered jobs like that, in my experience, it's just it gives you such a lift as an actor as well to just be asked to come and do something based on past merits, you know. And I think you. I don't know. I feel like I certainly don't think it makes you do a worse job. And I would argue that sometimes it makes you do a better job. You know, you feel it kind of pumps you up. You come on to set, you know well up yeah there's parallels there definitely with um pitching in our industry just all the free pitches that are often expected um yeah i mean it's yeah it's not a, it's not a game that every agency plays and, and you know we tend not to ourselves but that you know that's a, we have to be I, I say that knowing that in the future that might have to change depending on opportunities and and cash flow and so on and so forth so yeah that makes complete sense and you're right if you're awarded work without having to pitch it does have a holds a lot more significance and i think just from a psych psychological perspective it's gonna motivate you in a way that it wouldn't if you'd had to jump through hoops i mean for sure i think i think i think i think it does and i think um yeah to, like trusting in what somebody can can do uh, but yeah i look i understand why it's it's not like that as well sure well i mean one if i we're talking about other things you, we could banish you know in terms of my experience of working in advertising and commercials one one thing that um is always kind of and there'll be reasons for this and you may be able to tell me is you know that it just always seems to be just ridiculously short lead-in times for the shoots because i you know i know it takes a long time from pitch to you know writing the scripts to you know, assembling the, the the pitches from the directors how much work and time goes into you know getting all that side of it ready and then it's like Right, when are we shooting? In two days' time. Should we cast it then? Well, why Why is that bit left? It seems to me like no time whatsoever. Are you available tomorrow to fly to Cape Town? Uh, uh, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Okay, but why didn't you ask me like a month ago? I've got a diary. We've both got diaries, right? Well, when are you then, when are you thinking of doing it? I'll put it, up, I'll put it in the diary. It's fine. It's in there. That's happening. You don't have to leave it to the. It just seems like it just causes so much stress and so many ulcers for so many people that it always gets left to the last minute. I've never, I've never really understood that. Although to be honest, some of the adverts I've been seen for, um, kind of back end of this year, last year, and this year seem to have a bit more. Oh, it's it's not filming until next month. Oh, great. All right. Fine. That's nice. No stress. So I don't know if that's changing, but it always seemed very kick bollock scramble. 
Yeah, I was not surprised that you say that, uh, but I, I and I don't have any. I don't have any answer that's vaguely acceptable as an answer. I suppose <laughs> as to why that might be. Fingers crossed. This is the sign of that changing. Are there, I don't know if you're a reader. You a reader, Tim? Are there, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Uh, for sure, for sure. I'm a I'm a I'm a slow reader, but voracious. I'm a voraciously slow reader, Jungles. <laughs> um, so, but, I mean, I, so I, I thought about this, and uh, none of these are necessarily, well, they're not advertising or marketing books, but um, the, I mean, the reason that I've chosen these uh, is because I think they're all books that will uh, forever change the way in which you look at the world. One of them is by my favorite uh, filmmaker, Werner Herzog. Uh, there's a book uh, of interviews with him called Herzog on Herzog, which I've got, but I believe there's an expanded, repackaged uh, version of this book called A Guide for the Perplexed. Oh, okay. And it's basically just a series of of interviews with, with Werner. And if I look at my, which I've actually got by my side here, if I look at my copy of it, my dog-eared copy of it, it's just got bits underlined everywhere, little post-it notes just throughout with just moments of madness, wisdom. Just it's, it's probably the funniest book I've ever read. I just find him hilarious, Herzog. Um, and th- there's, yeah, I mean, it just starts off with a quote from Conrad Hilton about, you know, if there's one thing you could pass on to posterity, Herzog says, well, Conrad Hilton said, whenever you take a shower, always make sure the curtain is inside the tub. If that's it, always put the always put the curtain inside the tub. You don't need anything more than that. Yep. Far as Werner's concerned, if you do that, get that bit right, everything else will fall into place. So there's 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 that. There's a number of Herzog books. There's another book about when he made um, um, Fitzgerald in the in the jungle with Kinski is also just hilarious and mad uh, I'm currently reading a book called um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek which is by Annie Dillard uh, one of the Pulitzer Prize uh, in the 70s and it's considered by many to be the, the holy grail of nature writing so I've just started reading that and I've been wanting to read that for for a long time a uh, long time Um I would also recommend uh, a book by a chap called Nick Hayes, which is a, a charmingly radical book called The Book of Trespass, um, which came out a couple of years ago, and I can't recommend this one uh, highly enough, really. It's like passionate, provocative, illuminating, uh, quite a strong Berkshire narrative, too, as well, for people of a reading persuasion like self. Um, and it's basically about history of, of land rights in, in this country and actually Nick, somebody else that I've been um, hoping to make a film with at, at some point and he's been Nick is a, a, a big part of the Right to Roam campaign which have been in the news recently over the, um, the change to wild camping rights on, on Dartmoor so, so it's, an ama- it's an amazing book, it would, it's genuinely changed the way that I that I look at the the English countryside from reading that book. It's made me very angry as well, actually, about about certain things. Uh, statistically, it's something crazy. Ninety two percent of 
uh, the land is is kind of off limits to to the commoners of this of this country. Ninety two percent we're not allowed to go on its own privately. Ninety. You know, it only getting worse. All of that stuff. Um, so that's great. And there's another book that Nick did called The Trespassers Companion, which is equally brilliant. But that one's got more of his illustrations in it. He's, a, he's an amazing illustrator as well, Nick. And what else could I, I mean, it's not too weird to recommend something that I've not actually read yet. There's a, um, Sarah Polly has got a book out uh, of essays called Run Towards the Danger. And Sarah Polly is a filmmaker, uh, actor, Canadian as well. Um, and she, big fan of her, of her films. So I, I suspect this book will be kind of wise and, and essential as well. So I will get to that at some point. Um, and yeah, can I mention a couple of films? There's one yeah, called, um, not books, but films. There's a film called Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths by the master Mexican filmmaker Alejandro Inarutu. Um, which I recently watched. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's a quasi-biographical um, romp through magical realism. You know, a bit bloated, and I think some people have found it a difficult, difficult watch, but there, there are probably enough ideas in that film to fuel the advertising industry for at least the next six months, I think. It's just, just full of, like, visual wonder and magic and just... I found it breathtaking. I kind of watched it in chunks, and then watched like the last forty-five minutes in one, in one sitting. So that that I found stunning. I thought, and then I also saw this short film quite by accident called Hall Out, which you can watch online, um, and it's set on the remote coastline somewhere in the Russian Arctic, made by a brother and sister team. And they shot something like 60 hours of footage over a period of three months there with this one guy basically who lives in the shack there. Uh, the final cut of the film is, is 25 minutes long, but seriously, if they ever release the 60-hour cut of it, then I, I'm, I'm there for that. Front row seat. It was just... It blew, totally blew me away. Awesome. There were a link to all of those. I'll have to check that one out. That sounds incredible. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and the number four is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that on us, depending on your view to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you would you dedicate this episode? Well, I, I want to give love and thanks to uh, my wife, Emma, and our wonderful daughter, Gretel. But I want to dedicate, I thought I should dedicate partly because it kind of brings our chat full circle, if you like. I would like to dedicate uh, this chat to my grandparents, Harold Jeffrey Plester and Grace Plester, uh, who were the grandparents who owned the newspaper business in Adderbury, whose comics I used to steal <laughs> when I was a young boy. And I had a really a close relationship with them they were they were a really important part of my, of, of my life growing up and um yeah they're both sadly no longer with us so yeah i'd like to dedicate this this to them really they they played a, a you know big part in my 
youth and my development. Wonderful. Yeah, what a lovely dedication. Well, lo- love to Emma and Gretel, of course, and this episode is very proudly dedicated to Harold and Grace Plester. Fantastic. Well, everything we've discussed, plus a lot more that we haven't had a time to discuss, is listed in this episode. Uh, we'll have all of those books. So we've got Herzog on Herzog. Yeah. Uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. The book Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, yeah. The Trespasses Companion, Run Towards the Danger. Um, both of those films, The Hall Out, Bardo. When I say film, documentary, the second one. As a final call to action then, how else can people listening get more Tim Plester? The documentary she's talked about uh giles or we've hinted at way of the morris and ballad of shirley collins they're both on uh available on vimeo both available on dvd as well if if such you know archaic um which <laughs> system to your liking the most recent documentary that me and rob made together is called southern journey revisited that's that you can watch on now tv so you could i was thinking you could justify the price of the subscriptions to, so that you could watch um, the, the quite stellar The Last of Us, which is on Now TV at the moment. Uh, you could piggyback Southern Journey Revisited onto that maybe <laughs> and, and justify that price. There's a film that I made in Iceland uh, just before lockdown called Backyard Village that, I, that I'm acting in that I'm really, really proud of. Here's another, I wanted to talk about Reading again, inspired by you. Um, there's a film called Love Me Till Monday, which is a shoestring budget film set in Reading, which we made about 10 years ago. Most of the dialogue was, was improvised. That's also on uh, Amazon, I think, Amazon Prime. And then, yeah, bits coming up, both on Netflix. There's a show called The Bastard Son and the Devil Himself, which is already out there, which um, I've got one memorable scene in that. There's a second series of a show called Shadow and Bone, which drops on March the 16th, I think. I'm in two episodes, two episodes of that. So they're, yeah, both, they're both on Netflix. So, you know, get those whilst your shared password still works. I think they've reneged on that. Oh, you know, you're right. I saw some latest news. Yeah. The latest news. It was, it, it was announced by mistake, apparently. Yeah, because yeah. it's easy to, to issue those sorts of yeah. global press releases. Yeah. It's so easily done, isn't it? It's easily done. <laughs> that remains me to do, Tim, is to say thank you once again. I've I've loved chatting. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege, mate. I've really enjoyed it, Carlos. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to have a have a now with you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Fan of the show. Although in in closing, because I know it'll go to this bit afterwards. Again, to return to the beginning when we were talking about the theme tune, I was listening to it the other day, and you know I'm not here to pick holes. So that's not why I'm here. <laughs> but at the end, you know, when it goes, I can't get no call to action. I'm sat there going, well, you can, because you've just I've just I've just had it. I mean, I'm I'm, listen, I'm still technically listening to it. I, I have just had. I've had call to action, so I can get a call to action. I've just, I've just listened to it. I can get it. So, you know, I don't know if you want to consider that going forward, Giles, but that's, that's, my, 
Those are my notes. It's actually Mick Jagger. It's uh, and no one will ever pick up on this, but I don't really care because it, in a weird, perverse way, it makes me happy. The 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 original, obviously, that we're parodying is a is a Mick Jagger dig at advertising in the industry. Do you know what? That I th- I thought that. I thought, is it is it is it kind of is, is Jars trying to repatriate the the song, kind of take it back? Because exactly, it, it isn't a, a, an attack on the increasing commercialization of the modern world. Yeah. There you go. There we go. Well, um, thanks again, Sim. And thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.